disciples were on the way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, as we enter into this time of focusing on your word, we pray that as your Holy Spirit is present, that, he, that we will understand, we will understand your word more deeply and that it will be written more deeply upon our hearts that we may live out the message of your word, your grace, and your love. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I heard the story uh, that, uh, of something that happened in the hospital. The relatives had gathered in the waiting room where a family member lay very gravely ill. Finally, the doctor came in looking tired and very somber. He says, I'm afraid to be the bearer of bad news, as he surveyed those worried faces. The only hope left for your loved one at this time is a brain transplant. It's an experimental procedure, quite risky, and you'll have to pay for the brain yourselves. The family members all sat silent and as they absorbed the news. At length, someone asked, well, how much does a brain cost? The doctor quickly responded, well, a female brain goes for 20000 and a male brain goes, costs about 50000 Now, all the men, I'm sure, are, uh, you know, their chests are uh, inflating this morning, right? Uh, that, the moment turned awkward, though. The men in the room tried not to smile, avoiding the eye contact with the women, but some actually smirked. Uh, a girl, unable to control her curiosity, blurted out the question everyone wanted to ask. But why does a male brain cost so much more? The doctor smiled at her childish innocence and then said to the entire group, well, it's, it's a standard pricing procedure. We mark the female brains down because they're used. Okay. You know, we, uh, we live in a time and place where the view on the role of women in society has changed very quickly. What was viewed as uh, women's liberation just a few decades ago now is often viewed as being backwards. You know, one of the uh, continued great debates within many Christian denominations is the role and calling of women. And uh, though I'm a, an evangelical egalitarian, you can ask me sometime exactly what that means, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful to be in a denomination where this is seen as a non-essential and where we have embraced those of differing views on the issue. You know, uh, Paul once wrote to the Galatians emphasizing that through faith we all now share in God's glorious 
new covenant that provides freedom for all of us who believe. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think uh, this issue on women gets a little bit uh, more clarified as we look at the gospel of Luke. You know, uh, only Luke includes this event in Christ's life. So uh, I think it's something that is worth taking a closer look at. So let's start with Martha. You know, uh, she is clearly upset by the lack of help she's getting from uh, her sister Mary. She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? You know, in the the Greek, this isn't an open-ended question. It's asked in such a way that Martha expects a positive answer to her question. Her expectation is that Jesus will indeed come to her rescue, that he will properly chastise Mary for her behavior. See, Martha is performing a worthy and honorable task. She is properly sacrificing and working hard to provide for these disciples. She knows the proper role of a woman in that society which was to serve others, especially men. See, in a society that viewed women as of little value, she knew her proper role. Martha is performing a worthy task, and Jesus isn't uh, in the least critical of her for that. But the problem is is that she is consumed with what others are doing. You see, Jesus doesn't criticize her for what she is doing, but for being concerned about the activities of others around her. Do you see that? So let me be clear. The activities of serving others is a terrific and honorable one. It's right to serve others in this way. In fact, anyone called to leadership among God's people is called to servant leadership. But when she turns and sees others acting in ways that don't line up with her expectations, what is truly in her heart is revealed. See, she is resentful of her sister. Rather than serving with joy, what's found in her heart is that she is serving to fulfill an expectation and a role. And she is resentful that others might be called in other ways, other directions, directions that don't make sense to her. See, Mary, on the other hand, is an example of someone who sits at Jesus' feet just as disciples were expected to sit. And Jesus says that Mary has chosen a needful thing or a good thing. She has suspended the role and tasks that are required of her as a woman in that culture so that she can simply sit and learn in quiet, loving devotion to her beloved Lord. There's another key perspective that I've been hinting at here. In Jesus' society, women weren't allowed to become disciples of a rabbi. That door was absolutely shut and locked. The option was simply not on the table. The proper societal response of a Jewish rabbi to Mary's actions would be the one that Martha calls on Jesus to perform. 
to rebuke her, remind her of her proper role in society. Jesus, asserting that Mary has made a good choice, is radically countercultural. It is a radical step. In a culture where women were viewed as unworthy of receiving a religious or spiritual education, this would have been regarded as wholly unacceptable. But here is a key point, and it is point one on your outline for those of you who like to take notes, which are found in the middle of your bulletin. Grace knows no boundaries of gender or social barrier. Jesus was willing to cross gender and social barriers. The Lord was willing to teach everyone, and so should we. It is a radical inclusion that needs to be reflected among God's people. Now, uh, let me focus on Martha's attitude first. You see, Martha has wrongly judged Mary's inaction and worries too much about what others are doing. Martha is consumed with, with assessing others, and Jesus rebukes her for concerning herself too much about what Mary is doing. In asking Jesus to enter into her complaint, she assumed that her evaluation of Mary's choice of priorities was indeed the right one. But Jesus refused to endorse Martha's complaint. Although she was doing valuable work, she should worry less about Mary's choices. And so point two on your outline is this. We, too, often spend too much time evaluating the walk of others and too little time being self-critical about our own actions for Jesus. Just think for a moment how much more effective the church would be if we gave half the energy to assessing our own walk with the Lord that we do to assessing the walks of others. So I'm going to give you another point. Point three is this. A Christian community destroys itself when all its energy is spent being an assessment agency for one another. See, what's really crucial for an effective community is for each of its members to take individual responsibility for his or her own walk and allow the community to minister in a positive an encouraging way to one another. That doesn't mean ignoring sin in the midst of a community, but it does mean being slow to make assessments in areas that have nothing to do with sin. See, Martha had crossed the line, and so the Lord refused to hear her complaint. Mary needed to be honored for her choice. See, instead of critically assessing others, our call, as we've seen, I think, in uh, our previous series on prayer, is to intercede regularly for others before the throne of grace. It's to pray for others, to grow in their faith and their walk with Jesus, not to criticize and demean. So how about you? Is your habit to look for faults in the calling of others? You know, I, uh, I wonder if our greatest danger isn't really moral failure, but
but moral pride. We find it easy to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It's easy for us to believe great things come from our own efforts. It's easy for us to believe we won't fail in the way that others have. Pride is always deadly to our spiritual growth and witness. It leads us to think we're able to accomplish God's mission, to be his lights, just out of our own goodness. See, the truth is that pride renders our witness hollow and false. Outwardly, it may have a nice religious shine, but underneath, it's just a self-righteous version of the same darkness that we have within. So uh, how do we overcome this danger? And this is point four. We need to stay firmly planted in the gospel, which reminds us we are nothings who've been made into something by Jesus. We were rebels and enemies of God, dead in our sins and on the wide road that leads to eternal death and destruction. But God, in his grace, rescued us, and by his grace, he will guide us home. See, the more we know and appreciate this, the more humble we should be. And the more humble we are, the better we'll be able to walk by the Spirit in dependence on the Lord's amazing grace. Sadly, most of us have become cynics. We look around us and believe that people have horrible ulterior motives. There's a significant difference between discernment and cynicism. We're not called to be cynics, but servants. And when I'm a cynic, I can't see the beautiful, impossible work of God in my life or in the lives of my brothers and sisters. You know, uh, personally, I've learned that I have to let go of my vision and my desire and embrace God's vision if I truly want to see the beautiful and impossible things that he is doing. See, cynicism or the belief that people are motivated only by their own interests or from the desire for evil outcomes comes mostly from bitter disappointment. We've all had our illusions shattered at one time or another, either because of an event or because of being worn down over time. So I want to suggest to you that this morning that many of you sitting here have been disillusioned by the ministry and past leadership of this church. Maybe you've been disillusioned by my failures and my weaknesses. You've expected certain things and they haven't come about. But let me also suggest that disillusionment should actually be thought of as a gift from God. See, to be disillusioned is to have our illusions dispersed. In describing a healthy Christian community, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote this, the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to community, the better for both. See, falsehoods and misconceptions need to be exposed and dismantled for a healthy faith 
and healthy church community. A disillusioned Christian can often be the most insightful member of the church. We need to be rid of the illusions that everyone in a Christian church will treat everyone just wonderfully. We need to be rid of the illusion that we're not all sinners who have failed and will fail many, many, many more times. We need to be rid of the illusion that people don't make mistakes and don't hurt one another. The truth is, you know, these one another commands of the New Testament are there because we live in a community filled with failed sinners. God has included the chief of sinners among us. Thank you, Jesus, because, you know, I wouldn't be here if he hadn't. We need to be rid of the illusions that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy all the time. We need to be rid of the false illusions that Christians should be living in constant victory over the pains, the trials, and all the difficult circumstances of life. But the problem is that disillusionment hurts. Shattered illusions can leave us deeply wounded. And when we resist spiritual renewal and restoration, we usually end up going down a dark path, the path of cynicism. Cynicism arises when our brokenness sours into bitterness, when our spiritual wounds become infected. But disillusionment is a gift, but cynicism is a sickness. I want you to know that I, too, have struggled with a cynical attitude about the church. I, too, have been hurt by leaders, those I considered close friends and confidants. I've been disillusioned about the direction of evangelicalism as a whole, and I've often felt betrayed by those I thought to be mature leaders in congregations where I've served. I, too, have been wounded more than once in this way. And it too has led to cynicism in my heart. And in those times, I've had well-meaning Christians tell me that, well, God will never give you more than you can handle, which is uh, really just a distortion of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But let me suggest that the biblical truth is the exact opposite. God at times gives us way more than we can handle so that he can drive us into a deeper dependence on him. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You see, what you'll never hear from me is false idealism, which unfortunately seems to pour out of a lot of pulpits in the form of empty platitudes and small, trite sentimentality. You know, sadly, many well-meaning Christians have anchored their hopes in optimistic ideals that turn God into a genie or a magician or a giant Santa Claus in the sky. 
from some pulpits, all one hears is one-sided biblical truths of triumph and strength and deliverance and joy and happiness without also embracing the equally biblical truths of suffering and pain and struggle and weakness. See, if all we do is push a Christian triumphalism, the result is either just weak, immature believers or jaded cynics like I was, or both. See, our unrealistic expectations of what it means to live as people of faith in a broken, fallen, depraved, sinful world can ultimately shipwreck our faith. Idealists within the church pretend they have that one foot just inside of heaven's door. But the cynics know better. The cynics know that the way back to the Garden of Eden is slammed shut. You know, when I was a cynic, broken and beaten down, what I failed to see is that God is in the business of revitalization. He's in the business of renewing, of remaking. He's in the business of making a new heaven and a new earth which is on the way and is in the process. The redemption of everything is both around the corner and in the process of coming. It is what uh, biblical theologians refer to as already and not yet. See, the resurrection of Jesus is the bold announcement of the end of cynicism because it looks forward to and assures the end of everything that makes us cynical. Now, I'll soon be preaching a series in the book of Revelation, which uh, I hope will highlight some of these truths. Now, uh, Since idealism and cynicism aren't the place we are to be, what should we do? And this is point five on your outline. The biblical picture is one of hopeful realism. Hopeful realism. It's a perspective that understands the fallenness, the weakness, the depravity of my own nature and those of the people around me but it also embraces the hope that is before us that all of us, all of us, are a work in progress. Every time you see a Christian brother or sister, you need to kind of see a sign hanging from their neck, I'm under construction. It looks squarely at my brothers and sisters around me. It sees their faults, but it also sees that they, like me, have the Holy Spirit working in them, renewing them. And so I'm called to pray for them daily while also seeing how far I have yet to go. I want you to know that this is a radical picture of how we are to live with one another. It gives grace to our brothers and sisters and allows us to trust one another despite our previous failures. See, there's another key aspect in this passage of Luke. Mary chooses to seek wisdom at Jesus' feet despite the social barriers. And Jesus is willing to cross those social barriers for the purpose of teaching her. 
discipling her. He doesn't seem to care if women weren't allowed to become disciples. He came to seek and save the lost, for in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, man or woman. See, Luke takes time to emphasize the value of women to Jesus and to the building of God's kingdom. Jesus foresaw a time when men and women would both contribute to the building of his kingdom, working together rather than fighting for power. Battles over power disappear or become less significant when we really have a proper vision that we are servants following God's call to make disciples of all those around us. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus is a picture of a person willing to learn from him. While Martha's busyness pictures someone serving him, and disciples need both. In other words, and this is point six, discipleship is a balanced combination of two things, service and reflection. It involves prayer and real-time meditating over God's word, as well as serving and caring for others. And uh, here's another point, point seven. Serving without being fed spiritually is dangerous. That's what Jesus' message to Martha means. We need to ask ourselves the motive for our service. Is it out of a sense of duty without a true desire for intimacy with God and his infallible word? Or is our service done out of true humility to serve God's people while at the same time hungering to grow deeper? in the truths of God's word. Sadly, when life gets busy, the first thing to go is time with Jesus. And I think many of us could use a little bit more Mary and a little less Martha in our lives. Let me give you another key point. God honors women. Back in the book of Genesis, we see the same love and honoring of women by God. God never intended that humanity would be set up in patriarchal societies. In Genesis chapter 2, God's order design was for marriage. One man, one woman were to leave and cleave to one another, becoming one flesh. But in Abram and Sarah's impatience, they decided to circumvent God's desires for, for a, uh, an accepted practice of their society. See, Sarai was barren, and despite God's continued promises to provide for them, in their impatience, they chose to solve the problem with a cultural solution that ultimately created even more oppression. See, this wasn't God's design. This was a solution created apart from God. So Abram and Sarai were doing things their way, And their sin of impatience with God, mistrust of God, led them to all kinds of further sins. Look with me in verses 5 through 6 there. Both Abram and Sarai mistreat Hagar. She shows Sarah disrespect, which leads to anger and eventually abuse. One sin leads to other sins, and they pile one upon another. In Hagar, we have a person who in that culture really is at the bottom rung of society. She was a woman, and so of little value. 
She's also a slave whose labor is owned by others. And on top of all that, she is from a hated people in the eyes of uh, Moses' first readers of this history. Remember, this history is being written by Moses to a people that were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. So how does God respond? First, God calls to her, echoing uh, echoing the words that he gave to Adam and Eve after they'd sinned and hidden themselves. After she replies, he gives an amazing blessing of descendants, very similar to God's covenant promise to Abram, therefore placing his hand of grace and care and blessing on her and her son. He names her son God Hears because God has heard her sorrow. Who is this woman that God should hear her misery? Didn't God place his hand of blessing on Abram and through him the Israelites? Why an Egyptian? Why this slave? Why this woman? And yet God hears her misery. And the Hebrew word to see here is the same word as to know. See, these concepts are linked in the Hebrew mind. To see is to know. So here is this Egyptian servant woman experiencing the heart of God. God has come down in a physical manifestation and allowed her to know something very intimate about himself. In one of the most intimate events in the entirety of the Bible, Here stands God in a visible manifestation before this Egyptian slave woman providing his amazing grace for her life. Is this how God responds? In a culture that valued women very little, God's response is intimate grace and covenant love, much like that shown Abraham. And it's the same for Jesus. Out of a cultural background that minimized the dignity of women and even depersonalized them, Jesus boldly affirmed their worth and gladly benefited from their vital ministry. Jesus not only ministered regularly to women, he allowed women to minister to him. In Luke 8, verses 2 through 3, some women helped Jesus' ministry financially, while others offered hospitality. And maybe most significantly, women were the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection. See, for Jesus, women had enormous value and purpose. In uh, Luke chapter 13, verse 16, Jesus addressed women tenderly as daughters of Abraham, placing them on the same spiritual plane as men. This is radical. He treated women as persons, not mere property. And Jesus taught women as Mary takes on the position of a disciple at his feet. Jesus' revolutionary treatment of women was consistent with God's original design for role distinctions. He doesn't obliterate the complementary aspect of men and women. Jesus honored women in a countercultural way, but consistent with that of the Old Testament. Jesus honored women. Jesus empowered them for ministry. They have equal dignity before God. You know, uh, it's very sad to me 
that many in our culture don't know this about Christianity. You know, in the press and in most secular circles, it's become commonplace to equate Christianity with Islam in their views of women. Yet that's the exact opposite. Scripture-minded Christian women founded the first feminist movement in response to 18th century social problems. Did you know that? Women of that era called for laws against child labor in filthy and unhealthy factories and mills. Deep concerns for family preservation led them to found temperance societies that called for men not to spend their wages at brothels and saloons that were put up by factory and mill owners. Although women had no legal vote, it was Christian women who worked to have laws passed to protect women and children living in squalor. They founded social service agencies and promoted education and training so women could support themselves and their children during that period of social and economic upheaval following the Industrial Revolution. Biblically faithful Christian women like Angelina and Sarah Grimke, Lucretia Mott, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, among many others, spoke out in public forums against slavery. Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth aided the rescue of slaves through the Underground Railroad. See, the work of these Christian women in partnership with men culminated in women gaining a voice in society and the legal vote. Their motivation stemmed from a belief that all, human, all humans deserve equal dignity and opportunity because they bear the image of God. Their accomplishments reflected passionate pursuit of a God-glorifying culture. Why? Because they understood that Jesus viewed women in great esteem. Because they understood that in Christ there was liberty. Because they understood that all humans can have full liberty and full access to their creator through an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. How about you? Have you embraced the better thing? Have you given your life to Christ and are seated at his feet as an equal disciple? When you serve in the church, what is your motivation? Is it true humility, grasping the grace and mercy of Jesus? Or is it somehow to grasp onto control and power? Is there more Martha or Mary in you? Are you a cynic? Have you been disillusioned? See, Martha had the outward form of a servant. But it was Mary who had the inward heart of a real servant and a real disciple.